so that they can get back and give us a, the, uh, so that they can glorify you in all that you've done in their lives, Lord. And we thank you in advance for that, Lord. Um, we do lift up to you, uh, well, Paul and Kimberly for traveling mercies, uh, uh, to just protect them on the road, Lord, as, they, as they're traveling and then Kimberly is flying. Um, and for all those who are, especially on this holiday weekend, Lord, who are or not here, uh, just protect them on the road and bring them back safely to, to joy. Uh, we do pray, Lord, that you, um, and also for those who aren't here, uh, who, uh, like Mary McHugh, um, who are, are just got more prayer needs than any one person should have, Lord. We just pray that you comfort her, heal her, uh, not just physically, Lord, we do, that is our heart's desire, Lord, that you heal her physically, Lord, but also heal her spiritually and mentally, Lord, and emotionally, Lord, because uh, the, of the, the injuries that uh, all of the suffering has caused her, Lord. We just pray that you restore her completely, and we thank you for that. Um, and for anybody else that's here that's feeling under the weather that we don't know about, Lord, we do uh, pray that you touch them and let them know uh, that we are uh, seeking you on their behalf. And Lord, for this, uh, for the transition, Lord, we just want this church to be, to glorify you in whatever we do and whoever comes into the pulpit, Lord. We just pray, Lord, that uh, you are pleased with what goes on here and that, uh, that you make us the church that you would have us to be in whatever form, whoever it is, Lord. We just leave it in your hands. Um, just like Becky is leaving in the sale of her mom's house, Lord, to, into your hands, Lord. We just wait patiently on you and seek your wisdom and your guidance in all of the decision makings that go into that, Lord. So just we just pray that you bless us, of course, Lord. And we just lift up to you the service, Lord, for Rick and his words. Uh, just we pray for your inspiration. Um, we have the Bible. We know you can inspire, Lord, so that we just ask nothing more or nothing less than that. And we pray these things in your name, Son's name, Jesus. Amen. Yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> there, there's my welcome. All right. Well, Let's look to the Lord. Let's, let's say a quick prayer. Father God, I thank you once again, Lord, for your grace and your mercy, Lord, that your word accomplishes what it's set out to do, what, what you will it to do and accomplish, Lord. It doesn't return void. Lord, we ask that we can focus on you, Lord. Lord, that we can see past the difficulties, the strifes, the things that actually get in our way, Lord. Help us to glorify you, Lord. Help us to draw closer to you, Lord. Help us to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. Well, welcome, everyone. I'm glad that you could be here. Uh, this, this actually might be a, a, a fine uh, sermon for, for Mike to fall asleep on because I'm actually picking up as my text Isaiah 58. And, and why I say that is because for the past, you know, so many months, we've actually been in Isaiah at Mike's in Sandy's Bible study. Um, so this is one of these situations where um, I get to sort of stand before my, my teacher in some ways and, and expound upon some things or try um, and hope that I don't get it too far off because, you know, I'll hear about it. So, 
so there we go. Um, I'd like to start today, though, um, giving a context in terms of, of the overall sort of flow of, of the message and, and where it comes from. So for the past two messages, uh, Patty spoke, I spoke last Sunday, um, and it had something to do with unity, unity in Christ. I mean, that's, that's sort of a general theme um, that you could use to tie both of those messages together. And I want to pick up on a piece of that as well today and continue with it um, by focusing on a particular part of the unity process that we have in Jesus Christ that, that we may not necessarily focus on a lot of times. Uh, we, we have blind spots in ways, um, and I want to try to illuminate one of the blind spots. Usually that blind spot has to do with how we may see certain people and be intentional about trying to be the hands of Christ and, and walking that Christian walk. But then there are other people who we may not necessarily extend that to, and, and these are usually folks who we would categorize as sort of the least of these. If I had to give sort of a title to, or a theme to, to what I'll be talking about today, it, it's going to be the least of these. We're going to be talking about Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 14. But I want to start with this illustration. And this is not my illustration. It's an illustration that I remember from many years ago, maybe 10 years ago. I stopped by a church, a uh, faith community church, and Jim Reeve actually mentioned this, um, and I just, it stuck with me for some reason, and I, I really appreciate this illustration, um, but I'm going to take it in a little bit different direction than he did. Um, he talked about trying to envision, so I'm going to ask you, try to envision a huge, beautiful window, huge, beautiful window in a, in a wonderful home, and as a part of just getting this home ready, you, you say, you know, it'd be great if I hung a really ornate curtain that would just set this room off in that huge window. And it just really make the room perfect. But not any old curtain, a curtain that, you know, intricate in terms of its embroidery, expensive, hand-woven, just something that you have to put a lot of time and energy into, kind of like a centerpiece in the room. And so you, you, you do all this preparation, and you get this curtain, and, and it arrives, um, and it's delicate, it's beautiful, it's ornate, um, it's everything you think it would be. And you go up to the window, and you hold it up, and you can just see this is going to be wonderful. And then you step away to look at it, and when you step away, it all falls to the ground. Now it's lying in the dirt, in the dust. And that's no good. So you go, you pick it up, and you put it back up again, and you hold it up. It's like, no, this is, this is how it should be. It should be perfect. And then as you step away to try to admire it from a distance, falls to the ground. Now, curtains, this is what I'm learning, being somebody who doesn't put up any curtains. Um, you may notice beautiful curtains, but what you don't often notice is what it takes to hold those curtains up is a rod. That rod has to go across. Without that rod, things just do not hang. Without the rod, things do not hang properly. And when you're thinking about this illustration with, with the curtains, as beautiful and as ornate as the curtains are, um, and as lovely as the, vis as the vision that you have for this room being, if you pay all your attention to this vertical process of putting the curtain up, but you don't realize that you actually need a rod to attach it to, every time you let it go and step away, it falls. It doesn't, it's, it's no good. It just doesn't hang. This is an analogy. It's an analogy for 
a lot of times we can actually focus on our vertical relationship. If you, if you can imagine this motion not being hanging curtains, but maybe you walk into a church, and if you see somebody in this motion, they're focused on God. Wonderful. But there's a horizontal plane as well to that vertical relationship. That horizontal relationship is a relationship with the people around us, each other. And if we've got all the focus here, which is absolutely important, but we have no focus here, we have no relationships there, we're actually not living this here amongst each other, it just doesn't hang. When Jesus is talking to the people who actually come to try to trip him up, and they say, you know, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus normally responds with a question. When you ask Jesus a question, you get a question back. But in this case, Jesus actually didn't respond with a question. He actually gave an answer. The greatest commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's the greatest commandment. And the second, like, like it is, is love your neighbor as yourself. And, and he responded right away because those two things hang together. And actually, Jesus finished that piece with, on these hang all of the law and the prophets. It just doesn't hang if we're not living out this relationship with God in ways that actually start to manifest in relationships with one another. Hold on to this illustration as we turn to Isaiah 58, because I think that's going to set the context for understanding this a bit. Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 14. Now, a little bit of the context as you turn to Isaiah, and I hope I get this right, Mike, so you won't fall asleep on this one. Um, <laughs> so we've been in Isaiah, and I would encourage anybody, if you've got some time on a Sunday evening, come on out to Mike and Sandy's. It's not just good food. It is good word. Okay, it is good word. Mike actually spends quite a bit of time, and I'm always blown away with, how do you actually keep all this stuff in your head? Like, you, this is stuff that you have to marinate in. Um, it, it's really good. And before Isaiah, we were in other books. And it, it, I would always encourage anybody who, who really has a thirst for the word, come on out. So we've been in Isaiah for a while now. We usually spend about a year <laughs> in, in, in a book. Um, that's how in-depth we go with it. And in Isaiah, you've got basically God talking to Israel. And God is talking to Israel concerning a period of time that covers a couple hundred years. He's talking to Israel and has a word for them prior to them going into exile into Babylon. He's got a word for them while they're in exile. And he's also got a word for them when they come out and they return out of the exile. It covers this entire period. God is speaking to his people because they're going to need some things. And some of these words are words of warning. Hey, if you don't turn, here's what's going to happen. Some of these words are words of hang in there, okay? You're, you're reaping what you sow, but hang in there. God is in control. And some of them are words of, okay, now that you're back, you need to pay attention to these things. Maybe you might not be thinking about these, but, but here's some more warnings. The Jews have gone through these ups and downs with God over the years, and Isaiah gives us a snapshot of, yeah, here's what it's like to actually live in relationship with God back in the Old Testament according to the law. God holds you to these things, and there's a consequence when you don't follow them. So Isaiah 58 is actually picking up at a time where God's word is speaking to the Israelis, Israelites, Jews, after they have actually come back into Judah from the Babylonian exile, after they have come back. And you would assume that after they return from being in exile because they did not follow God's law, that maybe they have learned some things. Maybe they got the message. And indeed, when they come back, 
what you find in chapter 58 is they are indeed following the law. They are indeed following the fast, the feast. They are keeping the Sabbath. They are doing the things that they were not doing that got them sent into exile. Or are they? Let's pick up in 58. 58 verses 1 through 14. Shout out, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. This is not starting out well. Okay? This is the first verse. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do, they fa why do we fast, they say, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? These are the people saying this to themselves. God, we fast. Why don't you see it? Why don't you notice us? Look, you serve your own interests on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the, thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer and shall cry for help and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, if your light, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall rise up the found, raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall, call, you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. I'll pause there. there. There's some other verses to come, but let me pause with that. This word starts off kind of harsh. Kind of harsh in a surprising way. This is what I would call sort of an unexpected surprise indictment from God to some people who think that they're actually following God and living godly lives and serving and following the law. They think that. And why we know they think that is because they're actually expecting God to respond and answer their, prayer, their prayers, to respond to them. And, and God is saying, you know, here you are saying, you know, why don't, don't, why don't you respond, God? And God starts to lay it out. It's look at how you're actually treating the people in your midst who are a bit more vulnerable than you. That is the problem. That's where the indictment comes in. And it's surprising. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where... You think you are doing an excellent job, only to find out that you missed the mark completely. That's surprising. I, 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 so here, I can relate. I can relate. There's, there's a situation in my life which, very embarrassing, okay, but I'm going to tell you, because, hey, 
it, it illustrates the point, and this is how I can relate. Um, there was a time in my life when I was in college, and you hear me speaking with you, right? I get this same, I get a response from people all the time when they meet me. Hey, you know, you, you've got a, a great voice. Do you sing? I don't sing. I don't sing a lick. I, I can't sing. I mean, maybe if I took lessons forever and ever, but that's not my strong suit. And I, and I know this. When I was in college, I let a young lady talk me into singing a song as a part of a gospel choir that I was a part of, leading a song as a part of a gospel choir. I, I let her talk me into that. Knowing good and well, I've never sang before. And please understand, <laughs> this was a gospel choir that actually performed in various churches. We went around, and, and number one, we're, we're all African American, which means you need to know how to sing if you're going to be leading a song, okay? That's what it means. Yes, absolutely. That, that, that's true. But you've heard of the bless your heart sort of response? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's now looking back on it, it's like all that applause that I was getting, that was not, yeah, go, that was bless its heart. I mean, that, I mean if, it, if it was like today, I'm like, I'm so glad it wasn't sort of, you know, we didn't have social media back then um, because this would have gone viral. This, this was bad. And, and here's, how, here's how I relate to this. When I got up to sing, Everybody applauded, and they're anticipating what was coming. And I started to sing, and I thought I was killing it. I really thought I was, because you cannot hear yourself like they hear you. You hear yourself how you hear you. It's a difference. And I finished the song, and I, you know, I was in it, and I'm like, you know, praise God. This is not something that I normally do, but God showed up, and, you know, all that is true. All that is absolutely true. About a week or two later, I was with the same group, same choir group, and we're headed to Virginia. And we're just driving along, and, you know, we've got music going on in the cars, um, and I'm in one of the cars. And, you know, the music is good, and, you know, just getting in the flow of the spirit. And then the song ends, and, and back then we didn't have DVDs or, or that sort of thing, so there were tape cassettes. And so a person pulls out the cassette, pops in another cassette. I'm listening to what's starting out as gospel music. I hear the music roll in. And then a voice comes through. And in my head, I'm thinking, this is awful. Who is this singing? And then it dawns on me, oh, no. Guess what they did that I didn't realize that they did? They recorded me. And somebody had the tape, and they played it. And for the first time, my whole perspective shifted because I could hear myself, how everybody heard me, and not how I was perceiving myself at the time. And it was God awful. I, I kid you not, it was awful. Now, here's the grace of God. You ever heard joyful noise? You know, it was truly God that would focus on the joyful part of that because I was truly there. But it was noise. I, I, I'll give you, I just got to be honest, it, it was not pretty sounding. Do you have tape? I don't, and I'm hoping that it has not survived. <laughs> I'm hoping that it has not survived. <laughs> and, and, and like I said, I'm so glad that this wasn't in the age of social media. 
Yeah, which is why I feel like, you know, it's, it's been 30 years, so maybe, maybe I'm good. Um, but yeah, this would have gone viral. This would have been the ROFL. You know, this would have been, this would have not been good. Um, and I can relate then to what it's like to think that you are truly killing it, on it, doing it, only to realize that actually <laughs> you're committing an offense on everybody's ears that you didn't even realize. Now, my offense was on people's ears. And I know that God is still gracious. You know, God is gracious because God honored my effort, and, and that's how God is. But I can also then understand, okay, well, here are the Jews, and they honestly think that they are doing everything that God has actually asked them to do. They have learned some things from their exile, and they've come back, and God has sort of brought them back into Judah, back into the land, and they are following the law according to what they think they should be doing. They're sort of seeing themselves through their own eyes. But then here comes God, who gives them a perspective of themselves through God's eyes. And it is a surprise. It is like, you know, when your eyes become opened or your ears become opened. Surprise. It is possible to think that we are walking and serving God and living out a godly life and miss the mark completely because the Jews repeatedly did this. We can fall into this as well. We can actually do this. It is our blind spots in some ways because we only see ourselves and experience ourselves through our own perspectives. In some ways, we kind of need each other. We need God, absolutely, but we also need each other to bring a bit more perspective in terms of what's really going on here. And I think that is actually what we're seeing here. We're seeing the Jews doing some things, thinking that everything is in order. But then God's saying, you know what, actually, you're missing some things that are really important. Remember that rod that's supposed to go across? None of this that you think you're doing hangs because you're missing those around you in your midst. And that is what Isaiah 58 is actually talking about. How are you actually treating your workers? How are you actually treating the poor? Well, you're oppressing them. You're actually causing them to work on the Sabbath. Even though you think you are keeping the Sabbath, you're putting them out in the fields to actually earn money for you on the Sabbath when the law has been clear. The Sabbath means you don't work, your servants don't work. Your animals don't work. And how can we fudge this in order so that we can still continue to get the income? That's where the Jews were in this. And God calls them on this. This is what God calls them on. Because they're putting the people around them at a disadvantage while they think they are all good with God. Zechariah chapter 7, verses 8 through 14, is another example of, of the same dynamic. In other words, this is not a new or rare thing for the people of Israel. Zechariah chapter 7, verses 8, says, The word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the orphan, the alien, or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. But they refused to listen and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears in order not to hear. God knows that we have a tendency to actually disregard everything that we're supposed to stand for when it comes to the people who are more vulnerable, the people who are around us who may be the least. We, we miss that for some reasons that, that I'll unpack in, in a moment, but God knows this about us. And, and what God does with this is not only call this to our attention and 
causes us to see that, hey, if you think your relationship with me is all good, but things with the people around you are not good, you got to rethink that. There's, there's judgment coming as a result of that. God aligns with the poor. God aligns with those who are the most vulnerable. God aligns with them. You don't really find God aligning with the wealthy, the powerful. That, that when you read scripture, you're not really seeing that. When, when, when Naaman says, you know what, I've got leprosy and I actually need a healing, and I've got this servant girl in my house who, who is Jewish, and so she's telling me about, you know, God can heal if you only find his prophet. So Naaman says, well, let me go to the king of Israel with gifts and a note from my king and seek the people in authority so that they can actually cause the prophet to pray for me and, and get my healing. And when the king of Israel hears this, he's like, wait a minute, I'm not God. This is not how God works at all. Because we have a natural tendency to think God aligned with the king, God aligned with power. No, God is actually aligned with the opposite. God is aligned with the opposite. And we consistently run into this reality because we tend to drift over towards that attractive piece of, okay, I want to be with these groups of folks. And then we start to lose sight of those others. When you look at Zechariah chapter 7, verses 8 through, what did I read, through, through 12, there's actually a list of folks here that, that, you know, when you look at, you know, why would God align with, with this group of people? And then you think about everything that you've read in Scripture and what you know about Jesus and what we know from reading about Jesus. It, it's really interesting. So Zechariah chapter 7 is talking about widows. The prophet, God through the prophet is bringing up Watch how you treat and interact with widows. Widows. In patriarchal society, male-oriented society, especially back then, widows had the least amount of resources, the least amount of representation, the least amount of power. Everything went through males. Your husband, your father, your son. And when you did not have husband, father, or son because they passed away, or you never, they pass away, you don't have children. That left these women particularly vulnerable. This is why when we read in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians, they're having to take up these collections because you've got so many people who've gotten into their senior years who moved to Jerusalem. The husbands pass away. The wives are still around. And they have no way to actually continue to bring in income, take care of themselves, and they have no covering or no husband or no son because usually they move, move from family who are in other regions. So it leaves them very vulnerable. Vulnerable to be taken advantage of. And this is why God is actually aligning with them. God aligns with them. Then he talks about, Zechariah talks about orphans. Now orphans. In, in the work that I do, a lot of times I actually go to places where they have to do, um, they have to bring in resources because there's not enough food, there's not enough stability. In, in two weeks from now, I'm going to be in Beirut, Lebanon. I'll be in Beirut. Um, and then after that, I'll be in, in North Africa, in Cairo, in, in Egypt. And I've gone to some of these places um, over the years, um, and it's not unusual then to see wow, there, there's poverty here like I've never experienced or seen in the U.S. We absolutely do have poverty, but you want to see poverty on massive scales, then you go to some of these places. And typically, here's how this plays out. You'll have a group of folks 
They might be living in a, a refugee camp or it might be a town that just is impoverished. And so organizations will truck in resources and food might be a part of that. And when people are lacking food, the things that you actually need day in, day out to live, and then you bring in a bunch of food in a truck, here's what typically happens, chaos. So we've learned that we've got to actually bring some order first and then bring in the food and sort of dish it out because chaos would ensue. A frenzy would ensue. People would get hurt. Absolutely. It happens all the time. But what you notice is if you bring that order and you have people sort of line up and they, they get this process going, here's what you see in the line. First in the line are men because they're stronger, they're faster, and they get there quicker and they can hold their place in line. And after the men are there, who you, who's next to mind are the women, the healthy women, because they're stronger than the kids and they're faster than the people who are ill, so they get there next. And they're not going to be in the front of the line because they can't necessarily battle the men. They're not strong in that way. After the women, then you see kids. Kids. And then after the kids, you see a mixture of sick women, sick kids. Well, there's only enough food to go around. And so as people start to pass out the food, the best that we can do, the best that we can do, is give the food to the people who get in line first. And by the time we get through the line and people have gotten their food and are somewhat satiated, then you run out of food, and that's when you start to see hobbling up the kids, the sick kids, the infirm, and they need food too, but you're out of food. There's a, there's a, a, a friend of mine who, who told me this story. He, he, he tells this when he was actually doing relief work uh, back in, in his early 20s and 30s. Um, he said he was a part of this food drop that came in um, and he had given out all the food and after it was all gone, up comes this little girl and clearly she was hungry, clearly she couldn't fight off the crowds to, to get the food. And he felt so moved by this, he said, I don't have any food, um, but he went and he got his own lunch and he gave her a banana. You know, that, that's, but then he had to watch her to make sure that nobody else took that banana because that's the nature of it as well. Um, and he said, but she didn't eat it right away. Um, she went off a little ways and he sort of followed and followed behind to make sure that nobody's going to take her banana from her. Um, and she went in this little makeshift, you know, cardboard enclosure. And he could see that there were two littler kids in this enclosure. These were her little brothers, two boys, little brothers. And they truly were little, and they didn't have any parents. These were orphans. And instead of eating that banana, she peeled the banana, broke it in half, gave one to one of her brothers, gave the other to the other brother, and she ate the peel. You could see his heartbreak as he tells this story every time. God aligns with orphans for this reason, because these are the ones who get left out when push comes to shove, and it's every man for himself, these are the ones who've got nobody to care for them. And you can extrapolate that, because I do think we, have, we typically have an approach where we typically focus on families. And we sort of assume that everybody should be a part of a family, has a family that can protect them, take care of them, give them sort of a push out the door and encourage them. Not everybody has that. Even if you've got parents and family, Maybe those parents and family were not necessarily the type that actually helped you. Maybe they're the ones that hurt you. And I do think the message that God is giving us repeatedly is 
God chooses to align with those who don't have the family or maybe even have the family, but the family is actually problematic, detrimental in some ways. God sees. God sees all of that, and God aligns with those kids. Then God talks about aliens after the orphans. And aliens in the Jewish context, keep in mind that when you have Israel, Israel also then allows people, just like any other region, to sort of migrate through their province, through their territory, passing through. And some people decide to stay. Hey, you want to stay? That's okay. But these are people who obviously represent a, mon a minority amongst the majority. They probably represent a different ethnic group, different culture, maybe even a different religion. And God is actually saying, be careful how you treat them. As a matter of fact, in Leviticus chapter 20, 24, God actually says in the law, you have to have one law that applies to the alien and also applies to the citizen. You do not treat them differently. God is very much aware that we have a tendency to do that. We can get into an us-them attitude, especially around resources, and we can begin to act in ways that absolutely denigrate the very spirit that we're here to represent in Christ Jesus. And so God is actually aligning with them and also instituting in the law, you actually have to have laws that actually protect everybody. It treats them all the same. This is coming from God through his people. And then the poor, who Jesus says will be with us always. And God always aligns with the poor. It, it, it makes me rethink some things in terms of what it must be like for a disciple to see Jesus and you know what? We got places to be, Jesus. And you know we got to be here by this such a time. And the fast and the feast is going to be here. And if we're trying to get there, we need to get the move on. But every time some kids come around, you want to have a little play date with them. Jesus, we got stuff to do. And this is why the disciples were always sort of having the kids sort of go away. But Jesus is always remembering the kids. He's always remembering the kids. These are the ones who fall into these categories where, you know, this is actually where God aligns. The people who you think would be furthest from me, who we probably wouldn't give the attention to, this is actually where the attention goes. And you begin to see how Jesus is responding and acting that if the disciples only saw that at the time, V8, light, light bulb, but they didn't see that at the time. They're very much a part of what we all deal with and struggle with. So these are some of the folks that actually represent the vulnerable, and God is actually telling us, this is who I align with. And if you do not actually treat them well, and if you, especially if you treat them poorly, I count it as rebellion. That is what Isaiah 58 is starting out. God counts it as rebellion when people fail to act in the justice and righteousness that he calls us to. And God sees this. This is the horizontal rod that needs to be there if our worship is true. It's got to be one and the same. There's a... How many people have heard of David Augsburg? I don't know if that's a common name. Okay, one, my wife, of course. <laughs> David Augsburg is a theologian, but I had a chance to listen to him. He, he was at Fuller. Um, I don't know if he still is. I doubt if he still is. Um, but I do, think he's, I do think he's around. Um, I had a chance to listen to him. He, he just you know, pulled out a chair and sat down in a room and just started talking. Anybody who wanted to come could sit and talk with him. And I, was, I think I was working. <laughs> I was working security at the campus. So I had time, and I was there. Uh, so I was listening to him talk, and he was talking about different types, maybe like I would call it sort of a spiritual progression, how we sort of progress through spiritually. And I think it fits what we're seeing in Scripture a lot, and, and it came to mind as I was looking through, through the passages. Because he started off saying, you know what, a lot of people in our context, in our society, we, we, we start off with what he calls sort of a unipolar spirituality. That unipolar spirituality means they're not necessarily looking to God, they're looking inward to themselves. 
The world is going to actually say, hey, figure out your passions, your likes. If you want to discover your purpose, look inward. Understand your own truths. Those things do matter. That's what the world is going to tell us to do. And you know what? There's some utility in that. If you look inward, if you discover what are your likes, what are your dislikes, what are your passions, maybe you can use some of that to actually get down the road in an occupation. Absolutely. It's self-focused. It is self-focused. And so he goes from that to say, well, sometimes, though, God breaks through that. And so what you get instead of a unipolar spirituality is what we call a bipolar spirituality. Don't think bipolar means something bad. Okay, bipolar in my field means something bad. Bipolar spirituality, what he's talking about, is more there is an awareness of God. So now it's you, and now it's God. And there's this relationship that you have with God. And now instead of you necessarily being focused on yourself, you realize that God is your provider. God is your protector. And you actually get serious about your relationship with God. And you know what? Out of that relationship with God, you actually find a lot of people in the church. And they will absolutely be generous and tithe and give to the poor. And that is absolutely a good thing. But ultimately, where it can break down for folks is when push comes to shove and things get tight, it starts to reveal how they really feel about and make sense of their God relationship. Because a lot of us do feel like, hey, because I follow God, God is supposed to bless me. Because I follow God, I'm supposed to live this type of a lifestyle. I'm not supposed to have to deal with these sorts of things. And that is not what scripture says at all. So when push comes to shove, and that's the attitude that people truly have, then we find them circling the wagons, the us them mentality comes out, and they stop giving, and they put people on the outside, and they're going to take care of me, myself, and mine. And that starts to show up even within people who you might think have a relationship with God. It's when push comes to shove, when we're actually walking through the fire, where these things get revealed. So then Augsburger goes from there and says, you know what, but mature spirituality seems to be tripolar. Tripolar seems to have another dimension added to it. There is this awareness with God, the seriousness that you take that relationship with, but then you realize that it is inextricable, inseparable from your relationship and how you treat other people. Those things are one in the same, kind of two sides of the same coin. You cannot have one without the other. They are both there, and they're inextricable. You must have a relationship that focuses here. That is primary. But as an evidence of that, it's going to manifest in how you actually relate to other people. Then you get into, well, my purpose is not necessarily coming from me looking inward. My purpose is coming because, you know, when I recognize what's going on in my life and, and what's going on in the world around me, God has shown me some things about God that I need to know. How I survived this season of my life, how I got through this portion of my life and experience, it's because God showed up in these ways. I did not see it back then, but I can see it now. And God is showing me something about God that I need to know as I continue this journey in order to be the hands of Christ in the world so that other people can look back and see how God showed up in their lives through maybe me, but they can look back on that and say, thank you, God, for throwing me the lifeline, and God gets the glory. It is absolutely God-focused, but it absolutely is going to involve us actually being in the lives of other people in ways that are showing up like God would want it to show up. That is how we actually move through. That, that's a label of maturity in terms of spiritual development that, that we are striving for, that God is trying to get us towards. I think the greatest example is probably Jesus. 
and, and why, why bring Jesus in at this point? I'm going to bring Jesus in the whole time, okay? But why bring Jesus at this point? I do think Jesus complicates things, okay? Now, it's very simple. It's very simple. But, but I think it's very complicated in this way. We can all come away from, from sort of chewing on Isaiah 58 and, and walk out the door and say, you know what, I need to do this. And we go to do that, but we go to do it within our own human power, within our own efforts. And that is never going to get us far, because that's what the Jews had to do. And they kept falling back. They kept falling short of the mark. Jesus comes along, and he always ups the ante to just put it out of reach to see, like, there's no way that we can do that, Jesus. Right, because it takes God empowering you through the Holy Spirit in order to be able to do this at all. Jesus did not say, stop being mean to the vulnerable. Jesus said, do good. And then Jesus even said beyond that, you know there's some good stuff you know you ought to be doing, but when you don't do it, that's sin. Jesus' brother actually said that in James. The good that you know you ought to do and you don't do it, that is sin. When you look at Jesus' words, let's look at his words and then let's look at his actions because they all speak to this. When you look at Jesus' words, think about the stories that he told, the parables. Everybody remember the parable of the talents? Okay. He gives three servants, well, a master gives three servants talents, amount of money, and then the master goes away. Master returns later at some appointed time and he does a reckoning, okay? Everybody gather around, what have you got to show for what I left you with? The, the, the servant who he only gave one talent to, he gave one ten, he gave one five, he gave one one. The one that he gave ten doubled it. The one he gave five doubled it. Did I have those numbers right? Okay, thank you. The one he gave the one to, he said, you know what, I know what kind of person you are, you reap where you don't sow, I went and I dug a hole in the ground and hid it so that I wouldn't lose it and bring it back to you. So he did nothing. He did nothing with it. And Jesus' response to that was, you wicked and lazy service. Wicked. Wicked. Because you failed to do with what God gave you. Anything with it. God gave you something and you failed to do it. When you look at the good Samaritan, I know a lot of times we focus on the Samaritan that unusual person who you think would walk around and ignore the Jew who's been beaten and laying on the side of the road because they don't get along. And sometimes we overlook the fact that, you know, the priest and the Levite who were all Jewish, who, who were, like, devout, walked around their fellow Jew who was beaten and lying naked in the road. They are noted for their lack of compassion when compassion was obvious and evident that that what should have happened but they turned a blind eye. When you think about Lazarus and the rich man, that story, do you remember this one? Lazarus, wealthy, wealthy man. It says he, he ate scrumptiously, wonderful dinners every day. He said at his gate was a poor man, a beggar. Actually, the poor man was Lazarus, right? <laughs> thank you, thank you. Poor man was Lazarus. And they die. And the rich man looks up from Hades. He's in torment. He's in torture. Lazarus, however, is not. And, and the rich man, who was rich on earth, says, hey, just ask Lazarus to 
dip his finger in some water so that a drop of it could land on my tongue and at least give me some relief from this torture that I'm dealing with. And no, that's not possible. That wasn't possible. And I think we miss sometimes that, you know, it's not that the rich man was spending his riches on debauchery and all sorts of evil. The problem and the reason for his torture and his torment was that he failed to see the plight of the beggar who was at his door every day. That's what the issue was. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's always giving attention to, look at where God is aligned. Look at when it all comes down to it, who is resting in Abraham's bosom, who is in God's hands. And you miss that when you're actually on earth. You miss that in the day in and day out. The riches can actually blind you to that. These are the things that we're always up against. Jesus' words illustrate everything that that illustration of that vertical hanging of a curtain is supposed to be because that rod is supposed to be there. Those relationships need to be there. Jesus' actions, though, take it a step further. His words, absolutely, command us to do it. His actions demonstrate it. If you think about Jesus' actions, there are two that come to mind, I think, that really illustrate all of this. One, you may not necessarily connect it. Do you remember when Jesus cast out the money changers from the temple? I think a lot of times we think, well, why did Jesus get angry, make a cord, overturn people's businesses, and start swinging in the air and chasing them out of the temple? I mean, that doesn't sound like that's necessary. When you think about how we treat one another, Jesus, did you forget something? You know, that's the thing where it's like, okay, Jesus, what's going on here? I think to really appreciate this context, though, I think it's helpful to understand a bit about the context and, and what led into this. If you think about the temple, where this took place, the temple was where the Jews went to worship. And Solomon had a temple, and in it was the Holy of Holies and all the things that we talked about. We actually talk about this in, in the Bible study as well um, when we're going through Exodus, which we spent a year in. Um, but it was good. It's good because it sticks with me. Um, I, think, uh, I think it sticks with me because we went through it in the way that we did. But in Solomon's temple, you know, they, they've got specifications for how God wants his temple built, and they followed it exactly, and it's beautiful, it's wonderful, and there we have it. But every now and then, Jews stop following God's law, they go off course, and then people come in as a result of that, and people get sent off into exile, and a lot of times the temple is destroyed. Then they have to start over and they have to rebuild. And so by the time we get to Jesus' day, there's a temple. Now, it's not Solomon's temple. It's Herod who built this temple. And this temple is different than Solomon's temple because Herod wanted the Jews to like him. He wanted to win over the Jews. There's some, there's some politics going on with this. And he said, well, the Jews don't have a temple. How I could actually do this and, and get their favor and gain their favor is... I'll build a temple, but I'll build a temple that is grander than any temple that they've ever had. So Herod takes the measurements of the temple and actually just doubles them. So the temple that Herod has built in Jesus' day, the temple, is huge. Huge. So huge. And I think this is what we sometimes don't fail to see. Solomon's temple took about seven years to complete. Get all the gold and all the ornament and all the curtains. Seven years to do all that. Herod's temple took 82 years to complete. 
Herod started it. Herod's great-grandson is the one who finished it. And when it was finished, when you consider the temple complex and all the adjacent buildings connected to it, it actually took up as much as 20% of the city of Jerusalem. It was huge. It was quite a sight to see. Gold on the walls, marble floors, white limestone on the, on the walls, tapestries, ornate, everything. It was marvelous. And people from far and wide across all the regions, not just Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, they would come to Jerusalem to see this thing. It was something to see. So you've got all this traffic that comes in to see one of the wonders of the world. And then you've got money changers who say, well, when you come to the temple, we allow Gentiles to participate somewhat if they want to honor God. You can buy these sacrifices, but you need to buy it with the temple coinage. And they get business ideas. Wow, money changers, people coming from all over. This is a business idea sent from heaven, as they would say to themselves. And they began to set up shop. And as these people from all over the regions would come through, they just had, they were making money hand over fist with, with the money changing. And they let that get in the way of something that was very important. Because when Jesus finds them, these are the people who are actually occupying the outer court of the temple with their money changing business. The outer court was the place where Gentiles and the sick and the infirm came to worship God. They couldn't get into that inner court. They could only get as far as that outer court. But when that outer court is occupied by people making money, and so now you've got the vulnerable, the weak, the infirm, who can no longer worship God because there's no room, that is what set Jesus off. That is what set Jesus off. Making his father's house a den of thieves. Preventing the people who actually want to worship God from worshiping God, getting in the way of those vulnerable individuals who need to come into the presence of God. That's what Jesus corrected. And as a result of Jesus throwing over tables and chasing people out, guess what? They had access to that court again. They were able to reconnect in worshiping God in ways that it should have been from the get-go. Jesus is actually breaking down walls and speaking up for the most vulnerable in that situation. That's the context of this. And Jesus was not just content to break down tables of money changers. There were some other aspects of this temple complex that are really important to understand. And Jesus was not content just with that. He was going to break down all the barriers because you've got an outer court where the Gentiles and the infirm could worship, but then you've got a court that's in from that where Jews could come to worship as long as they weren't infirm. But then that was further subdivided because then you've got the women's section, which means women and children could worship here. And then you've got a place that's a little bit further in, which is where the men worship. But then you've got a court that's even beyond that, which is where the priest could actually enter. Holy of holies is what you would call that. But then you've got this inner court, holiest of holies. Now that is only where the high priest would go because that is actually where God was residing. And that room was separated by what? Anybody remember? A curtain, absolutely. An ornate curtain. And they actually estimate that when Herod built the temple, this curtain, ornate, beautiful, but probably 60 feet high, four inches thick. That's, that's some tough stuff. That's some tough stuff. All these walls of partition were a part of this structure which separated people. It gave sort of a, okay, you're not holy enough, 
So you stay here and you're relegated here. But me, I can go here. Well, you're not holy enough. Maybe I'm a priest, so I can get even closer. And then high priest, even closer. And to be real honest, they, they take that from God because God has got this curtain that says there's a separation between God and humanity that just is not going to work well for humanity if you try to breach this divide. It's just not going to turn out well for you because of sin. What happened to that curtain when Jesus breathed his last? You better remember that. It tore. When Jesus breathed his last, that curtain ripped from the top to the bottom. That changed everything. If you think Jesus was just about clearing out the outer court so the vulnerable could come into the outer court and still be far off from God, think about what Jesus ultimately was there to do. What he was ultimately there to do was march through each and every barrier, tear them all down, but it starts with getting that relationship right with God. It was torn from top to bottom because God did that. And God did that, and I know if we think about it in some ways, we, we may read over that verse kind of quickly, but, but for 1,500 years, I think God has been waiting to tear that curtain. Okay, 1,500 years, God has been waiting for this moment. And, and not that God is impatient, okay, but you know, you know what it's like when you got kids and it's Christmas and they run in there and they tear open those, those gifts? You, you know what that's like. A four-inch thick 60-foot curtain was nothing. It was nothing. God has been waiting 1,500 years in order for this to happen so that anybody who's in that furthest outer court could come boldly, Paul says, to the throne of grace, which is behind that inner curtain. We all have access, and we can go boldly there. And that's what Jesus is about. And when that relationship was made right, then all the walls of partition beyond that had to fall, had to change. And that is what Paul consistently speaks to in Ephesians, where he's talking about there's no longer a wall of partition or a wall of separation between Jew and Greek. This is what he's talking about in, in Galatians when he's talking about, you know, there is no Jew or Greek, there's no longer slave nor free, there's no longer male nor female. That is what that temple complex represented. All of that is, is erased because we are all one in Christ Jesus. We all can approach God. That is the family and the unity that Christ calls us into. And it could only be accomplished, it could only be accomplished, not through human efforts, but by what God did through Jesus Christ. And when that curtain was ripped, it actually then changes everything. And this is the new covenant that when we took communion and it says, you know, do this in the new covenant of my blood, that's the new covenant that we're given. That is the nature of the new covenant. Whenever, whenever we start to have the us-them tendency creep in, God is clear. He has aligned himself with the them. When we get into the us-them, he has aligned himself with the them. We have to keep our eyes open, not just to God loves us so much, but God loves them so much. All of this was done for not just us, but for them. And that gives us a different orientation because things have to change based on what Christ has done and Christ empowers us then to actually live according to something that in scriptures we don't see happening. We, we don't see it happening in scripture. And this is the very thing that Christ calls us to. Hey, you've got to do this and I empower you to do this. And it's only through this empowerment that you can actually do this. But when you live a life that is lacking of this, 
what you think is going on here, it just doesn't hang. It is just not hanging. And so with that, with that, this is where I look to my wife, am I on time? <laughs> I always preach a little bit longer than I, than I intend. Um, let us hold on to every word and every command that God gives us, but let us look to the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in how we walk it. Let us look to what God gives us to empower us to do this because we will look around and see a world that absolutely cannot pull it off. But as the church, we have to be different. As the church, we have to walk differently. And when we walk differently, then people start to experience us in ways that, wow, you're not fitting the mold of the world. Somebody will be able to look back someday and thank God and say to God, you know what, I give you glory because you sent this person who I least expected who would be there in this way. And you showed up, and that was you. When Jesus at the end says, you know what, there's going to be two groups of people, one on my right, one on my left, and Jesus is going to say, hey, you know what, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was sick, you gave me medicine, you tended to me. And people are going to be like, when did we see that? When was that? And Jesus says, as often as you did to the least of these, you, you did it to me. Because that is God's priority. That is where, that is where God aligns. Amen? All right. That being said, if we can say a, a quick closing, I'll turn it over to you with this, with this. But Father, we thank you once again, Lord, that you continue to speak. Father, not just through the words of Christ, Lord, but you, you give us the examples of how you've dealt with your people, Israel. And by those examples, Lord, we can look and see what wondrous grace what wondrous mercy you've bestowed upon us, Lord. It doesn't cause us to be haughty, but it causes us to be humble, Lord. Recognizing, Lord, how great you are, but how much you love us and how much you love the world, Father. Help us to be representatives, vessels used by you. Lord, help us to navigate this time and this place in our own world, in our own society, in our own country, Lord, in ways that would be reflective of you, even though the rest of the world around us seems to be going in the opposite direction. Give us the strength to stand firm, Lord. Help us to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.